Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Galatians chapter 5, we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. It's been enjoyable. And let me tell you, I have learned so much these several years ago when we switched to expository book through book, verse by verse going. There's something about just going through the book and finding out exactly what all the letter has to say rather than picking and choosing the the most popular points or the, the ones that most people know. And so we've been learning quite a bit here through Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, we see that the law is going to be fulfilled in loving others. And just to catch you up, for those of you who might not have been with us this whole time, up to this point, Paul has been defending the gospel of Christ. That is, that there is only one way one is made right with God and becomes part of the family of God, and that is by grace through faith, not through the Mosaic law. Paul had warned the Galatians not to accept any other gospel than the one he presented and that anyone who teaches a different gospel is to be accursed. As you may recall, some of the Galatians had been seduced by the Judaizers who taught that one must be circumcised and observe the law, the Mosaic law, to be part of the family of God. This is what the Hebrews thought. This is what they had thought for centuries. Paul, this teaching was dangerous because observing the law, and this is something you must understand, that observing the law does not save anyone. To obey the Ten Commandments and the rest of the 603 commandments does not save anyone. The law had no power to do so. Its purpose was not to save, but to point out man's need of a Savior and to serve as a guardian until the Savior, the offspring of Abraham, arrived. This is the same offspring that we see promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Paul proclaims that Jesus is that offspring, the Savior of the world, who fulfilled the law. Yes, the law is perfect, the law is pure, and it does contain the Word of God, but it had served its purpose. Paul quoted the law in writing that the righteous shall live by faith. To demand that one person or other people to observe part of the law is to be accountable to live out all of the law and all that the law requires, which no one other than Jesus Christ could ever do. To continue to live according to the law was to curse one to death. Instead of requiring everyone to live by the law, Christ has set man free from the law by his perfect obedience. In his death, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by bearing the penalty of our sin in the fact that we broken each and every one of God's law. That's the essence of the gospel, and that's worth defending. And we have spent some time looking at the different types of gospel that are preached even today, many from the churches and pulpits of America. Paul finishes up by condemning both the false teachers and their teachings as he warns the churches to resist them and to keep their hearts focused 
on Christ. Now today we're going to move as Paul now moves to encouraging them to live out the freedom found in the gospel. The gospel comes with freedom for many people. I remember one time talking to a young man and I says, why don't you receive Christ? Why don't you receive the gospel? And his answer was, I don't want to receive it because if I do, that means I can't live the way that I want to. So I'll do it when I've sowed my wild oats. Now these are my words, not his now. I'm paraphrasing him. But I just don't want to do it. And that's what many people think. I don't want to, I don't want to follow Christ because to do so is too rigid. But Paul is actually saying that it's actually freedom found in the gospel. That's been the theme of our series, as you can see there, called to freedom. We have been set free from the burden of trying to produce our own righteousness in order to be made right with God and to be accepted into His family. And that's where we find ourselves from Adam and Eve and their first sin is trying to produce their own righteousness. And even the law, as pure and as beautiful as it is, all in all, it wound up trying to produce your own righteousness to make God happy. And unfortunately, there are many people, even some who would profess Christ, that still live in a way that they're trying to make themselves right with God. And let me tell you, there's only one way to be made right with God, and that's being trusting in the work that Christ did. Paul introduces his call in chapter 5 and verse 1 when he writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. In other words, the law was slavery. To try to make yourself right with God by doing good works is slavery because you never could do enough. I'm sure many of you, as you were reading through our Leviticus chapter 19 this morning, 1 through 18, your first thought uh, is, is to say, wow, that's a long passage. And let me tell you, it gets longer as you're standing there, does it not? And I'm sure there are many of you say, man, what a long passage. And as if you were reading it, reading it with understanding, you think, who in the world could do all these things? That's the burden of the law. You could not accomplish it. It was a burden. To sit around and do all the things that the law required would just be devastating to you. But he warns that, that with that freedom of having to produce our own righteousness comes with great responsibility and expectations. And I like that to take your Bibles. Galatians chapter 5. Let's read 13 and 15 before we begin in prayer. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Father, we come before you again thanking you for your word. It is so precious. We thank you for your gospel. And we just pray that you would help us to have understanding of that gospel this morning. That we may defend it. That we may hold it dear. That we may live out its implication. Father, I pray that you would speak these words to our hearts this morning. Lord, I pray that you be with me as I speak your words. Let us be able to tell the difference between my opinion and the words. Lord, when my words line up with Scripture, may it be accepted. If not, let it be rejected as just another man's opinion. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit would just now begin to do the work. Let the seed find deep soil in our hearts and let it grow. And we rejoice that your word never returns void. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. I want to give you four observations this morning. Four observations as we go through this passage. The first one is actually in 13. 
where Paul reminds them of their calling. For you were called to freedom, brothers. I love, he's, he's again, acknowledged them as part of his family. These are believers. He's not calling into question their salvation. We saw that earlier. He had confidence that even though they were seduced and were moving towards it, that God would preserve them and bring them out of the false teaching. What Paul is writing about here is our freedom from the law and attempting to be made right with God on our own terms through obedience and good works. Paul is reminding them once again that they are released from the burden of producing their own righteousness. And let me tell you, that is a freeing thought and a freeing principle. And that is the gospel. You see, Christ has done what God has required. What does God require? We find it in Matthew 4, 48 when he says, You must be perfect even as our Father in heaven is perfect. Is there any of you here that have ever met that perfection? Has, has David, King David? Has Daniel? No. Jeremiah? No. John the Baptist? No. Paul, Peter? No. No one has ever met that standard. Paul says that if you fail in one part of the law, you're guilty of what? All of the law. And that's where you and I stand. And let me share with you very quickly, some of you may never heard the gospel so I'd like to give you really quick the gospel in a very short way. The gospel is very simply is that we have a wonderful God, do we not? We have a God that has given us everything that we need to love Him and to flourish. And He's given us and created us so that we may look to Him and give Him glory. He says, I want to create these people that they may see me. And our object and our desire or our desire should be is to look at Him as the object of worship. Every heartbeat, every breath, every function of every organ is a gift from God. The very fact that you and I can breathe is not just natural law, but it's the fact that Jesus Christ is holding that together and allowing us to do so. Each breath we have is a command, a decree from God. And He says, enjoy it, but look to me and then give me the glory. However, the problem is, is we've rejected Him as the object of our desire and worship. We have put ourselves in that place. And the Bible says that each and every one of us have sinned, has rebelled against them. Not only in our actions, but also in our attitudes and our nature. That simply means that our actions do not measure up. The Bible tells us that all, that all have become what? Of all have sinned, excuse me, and come what? Short of the glory of God. No matter how many good works you do, you never will measure up. I don't care if your name is Gandhi, Mother Teresa, or John Pope II. We all fall short. There's no one that measures up to God in our actions, in our attitudes, in our nature. Even our very actions are tainted with selfishness and pride and other types of covetousness. And that's only because our nature is guilty with sin. For as one man sin did sin enter the world. You and I are born... As we were holding little Landon, we think of him as an innocent, pure child. But in reality, he himself is filled with sin. He's conceived in sin. And sin is his nature. And he shows that when, he, when as they get older, we see that sin nature start to come out. Amen? We know what we're talking about. You and I understand this. We try to parlay it into some different way. But the penalty of that sin, that rebellion against God is death. And eternal separation from God. But God loved us in the fact that He wanted to make, 
to make us back to himself. God wanted to reconcile the world back to himself. He wanted us to, again, once again, to look at him as the object of our desire and worship. And so he sent his son to do what we could not do. And in Jesus' life, his 33 years, many times we just forget about his life. But that perfect obedience was very important. For what Christ did for us was so great that you and I cannot even fathom it as we go through. We, we continually learn and marvel at what Christ did for us. As God sent His Son, there had to be a penalty for death. And so God put His Son and say, I'll take all the sins and I'll put it on my Son. And He will bear the penalty of our sin. So at the cross, it says that He took the iniquity of us all and He placed it on His Son. And when God looked at his son, he could not even see him. for The sin was so devastating as he poured out his wrath on his son. But in the same way, the great exchange is not only the forgiveness of sin, but the fact that God took Christ's obedience and he put it to us. And so those of us who trust in him, he no longer sees our sin. He sees the perfect obedience of his son. And even when you and I fail, he doesn't see our righteousness or our lack of righteousness. He sees his son, and it's acquired to us salvation. The final tool there in the gospel is the fact that you and I must respond to that. See, there's many of us that will say, no, I'll continue to work my own way to God. I'll try to do it my own self. And you may even do religious duties. You may even go to church. You may tithe. You may read your Bible. You may pray. But all of those things does not please God unless you're trusting in what Christ has done for us. It's the whole point of the sin and the action, the nature, and the attitudes. So with it, I would pray today that you would respond by trusting that God has accepted what His Son has done on our behalf. And Paul reminds them of their calling. You are no longer burdened by trying to make yourself right by me by works. You have a freedom. You're no longer enslaved to sin. The second observation, they may say, well, all right, so I have salvation, so what? Can I just go ahead and just live my life any way I want? And that's where we come to the second observation, as Paul gives them a precept. We've took that. A precept is that thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's a command. Look at the rest of verse 13. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. One of the most popular political and social philosophies that are growing today is that of libertarianism. I'm not going to be able to say it. According to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, a libertarian is a person who believes that people should be allowed to do and to say what they want without interference from the government. And to be honest, that sounds good. Many of us would probably like that in some way or for fashion. According to their website, the Libertarian Party, it is America's third largest political party founded in 1971. Their vision is for a world in which all individuals can freely exercise the natural rights of sole dominion over their own lives, liberty, and property. Sounds good. Sole dominion. Does that sound familiar? I think, I think Satan himself was probably the first libertarian. I don't think 1971 was the, was the initiation of that. I think he might have been the president of it and the one who continues to propagate it. You need to have sole dominion. We love our freedom, especially in America. It's our calling card. We desire it immensely. Even as children and teenagers, what do we do? We seek our freedoms. As soon as possible, we want to get away from the burden of our parents and all of their things that they hold, to, to hold us to. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, as I said earlier, 
sat off their own independence with devastating and eternal consequences. Most likely, Paul is writing this statement here to warn those who might overreact to Paul's teaching on grace. Some might be tempted to move from a legalism of the law to the opposite danger of libertinism. And that's defined as a lifestyle or a pattern of behavior that's characterized by self-indulgence and a lack of restraint and a rejection of religious and other moral authority. You see, Paul is answering the question, if I'm saved by grace and through faith because I don't deserve it, does that lead to lawlessness? Does that lead to living my life in any way that I want? Some people may answer that in such a way. In other words, we make freedom from excuses for our sinning once we become saved. We may say, well, I don't need to obey the law anymore. The law is not for me. Well, since Jesus died for my sins, I don't have to worry about how I live. Someone might say, I have liberty to live any way I want since God gives me more and more grace. The more sin, the more grace. We see that in Romans and Paul answers that question. Or the one I love, no matter what I do, God will forgive me and still let me go to heaven. I hear that all the time. People who make a profession of faith, they say a prayer, they repeat this magical incantation, and then they can live any way they want, and they still believe that God is going to let them enter heaven. That's what Paul is tackling here. In other words, the Judaizers, the legalizers, will say, well, since you're taking away all requirements from them, then what's to keep them from living anyway? That makes it cheap grace. You and I understand that. And I think that's a good question. As Paul is asking here, does that mean you can live any way you want? The phrase opportunity for flesh, when he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity to flesh, refers to our natural desires. In other words, since I'm saved and I'm forgiven and I'm knowing I'm going to heaven, is it, is it okay just for me now just to live the way that I want? I don't have to do anything else, right? It refers to our natural desires. And even as Christians, our flesh still desires to rule over us. However, you and I are freed from being ruled by our passions. There on the screen you'll see Ephesians chapter 2. I encourage you, this is a verse that you need to know. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature what? Children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, look at this, made us alive. Amen? Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. You and I were enslaved by our natural desires, but now we've made free. So in other words, instead of saying, I can do anything I want, we have to come back and recognize that we were enslaved by our desires. We are no longer under that yoke and bondage ourselves. You see, in Romans, the flesh still lingers to seek after control. But we're not to let freedom become the platform of sin. And too many times, people who profess Christ, it says, I have the liberty to do whatever I want. And it becomes a, a platform, a way to indulge in the flesh. Thomas Schreiner writes that 
Freedom from law does not mean freed from all moral obligations. In other words, is the law still available for us or is it still something that we need to follow? He goes on to write that life in the Spirit expresses itself in service to others. We're not set free. We're not saved in order to fulfill our own selfish desires or the selfish desires of others. Many times, no, I live my life for other people, for our spouse, for our children, for employers, for our government, whatever it may be. But in reality, I find many people who say, well, I live my life for the children. The only reason that they do that, try to seek their own good, is still for their own benefit. And we're not put on this earth and saved from our sins so that we can pursue our own selfish desires. But we're to serve others in love. And this is a drastic change of motivation and purpose. Instead of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, you and I are to seek out the good of others. True freedom is expressed in love, which leads us to our third point, our observation, is Paul gives them a principle. And I love this about Scripture, about God. He never gives us a precept without telling us the principle. In other words, He never gives us a command without ever saying why. Is that not what we always ask? Whenever we tell our kids to do something, what's the first question they're going to ask? Why? But God tells us why. And that's what He looks at in verse 14 when He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why should I not seek my own selfish desires? Why should I seek to serve and love others? That's something that goes contrary to you and I. But what we see is that the law is actually fulfilled when we do so. For those who still want to fulfill the law, who still want to do what God commands, God says the way that you fulfill the law is the same way that Christ did it, by loving and serving others. For what did He come? He, came, he didn't come to seek His own but to seek and save those that were lost. He came to serve, and He came to give us an example of how you and I are to be humble and to give ourselves to others. Love is something that everyone applauds and promotes. From Gandhi to Mother Teresa to Coca-Cola, you know you want to go around, I wish I could give everyone a Coke around the world. They make statements like, my idea of freedom is the privilege of doing what I want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. That's the type of love we have. Someone else says, to me, it's the ability to make choices guided by the golden rule. And can anyone tell me what the golden rule is? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But what's the problem with that golden rule? Once again, who's the center of that golden rule? Yourself. In other words, you want to treat people so that you will treat you the same way. Again, that's not the freedom that God has called us to. That's not the love that God called us to. In, the, in these statements, the guiding principle still is self. But you and I are set free from sin and selfish pursuits to love and serve. Look with me at Romans 13, 8 through 10. He says, Oh, no one anything except to what? Love each other. For the one who love another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, we love ourselves and we seek out our own good. 
Now God is calling us to seek out others just as much as you seek out your own happiness, prosperity, and safety. And let me say that again. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Is that not the golden rule? No. You and I are lovers of self. And what we do naturally is that we seek our own happiness. We seek our own prosperity. We seek our own joy. But yet now God says what you need to do. As much as you seek your own happiness, as much as you seek your own prosperity, as much as you seek your own goodness, do that for others. That's the kind in which you esteem others, or not esteem your others, yourself better than others. And I tell you, that's life-changing when we love as God called us to love. To love someone else as much as you love yourself or to replace your love for yourself for them, that is what God is calling us to. Believers live out the love of God when we serve others. The Old Testament law is fulfilled. Christ in His perfect obedience fulfilled for us what we could not do. And Paul is pointing out that the moral law of Moses here did not include every conceivable thing. So loving others is a good indicator to determine what is moral and what is not. As 1 Peter tells us, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, he writes, since love covers a multitude of sins. We understand this. Don't you and I come to decisions? Don't you and I work with things and say, well, the Bible never tells me how to handle this situation. So how am I to love others? The Bible is it's simple. If you're loving others, if you're seeking their good, you can understand what the principle of God is. We need to recognize that love will cover the multitude of sins of others. If you're ever in any, any body, whether it's a family, a church, a job, a team, there is going to be things which create unloving type attitudes. But God says the love in the midst of those. And in it, you're doing the work of God. But let me tell you, this love does not come from the flesh. You and I cannot produce this type of love. This love only comes from the Spirit. With me, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Again, I believe this might be on the monitors. Where he says, love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in what? The truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And if you were to know, the first part of verse 8 says, love never ends. This is the type of love that you and I are to have, but it does not come from ourselves. This type of love that God gives to His regenerated children. I want to share with you a couple bullet points here of how do we serve one another in love. First one is you and I need to be patient. That's the kind of love that is tolerant. Now I want to say a word real quickly. This here being patient, the love that is tolerant, doesn't mean that we tolerate sin. It doesn't mean that we tolerate things that are evil. It doesn't mean what the world says tolerant is. But what it means is that we're patient. Sometimes it will take time for us to bring someone else in. I don't know if you've ever had a child or maybe a friend or a loved one who went off the deep end. 
and as much as we love them and care for them, to sit there with a rolling pin and beat them over the head is not going to win them back. And maybe you've tried that approach. Let me tell you, it usually doesn't work. So there's a love that's got to be patient. So let me ask you, who in your life do you need to be patient with right now? It's the type of love that needs to be tolerant. Again, not accepting evil, not accepting and giving judge or making uh, judgments against them, but recognizing that we need to be patient. Second type of love is that of mercy. And that's a love that's tender. Too many times our love is so far out there. But he says, when he says, speaking the truth in love, that's mercy. It's the type of one that says, I'm going to give you mercy. Why? Because we, we received mercy. I'm glad that God does not respond to me the way I respond to him. Amen? Because I deserve death. I deserve him to take the breath away from me each and every moment of my day. But he calls us to show love and mercy. The next one I want to share with you is a love that's encouragement. And that's a love that is thoughtful. It thinks of others. Many times what we need is a love that's not only merciful and tender, but one that is just encouraging, one that pulls us up, one that sets us up. Now I'm talking about lifting someone up and making their self-esteem and, and making some type of false uh, uh, picture of them. But a love that's encouraging. He tells us to encourage one another. The next one is the love of obedience. And that's a love that trusts. And many times, whether you're, in a, you're a spouse in a marriage, whether you're a child in, in, in the family, or whether you're at work, we need to have a type of love that's obedient. That not only shares obedience, but expects it. That's the type of love that we ought to have. So many times I see, talk to parents who say, well, you know what, I just let my kid do whatever he wants. You know what, that's not love. It's not obedience. Teach them the type of love that God has for us and what He expects of us. And then the last one is confrontation. The one that we don't like. That's probably the opposite here. And that's a love that is tough. There are sometimes we need to face people and in love we need to speak that truth. We need to share with them that their sin is not right. We're not making judgments, but we're fruit inspectors. And we're saying, hey, that you continue on this life, it is not right. I can't tell you how many people I have to talk to and they say, well, well, I professed Christ when I was a little kid. I said the prayer. And their life is nothing like Christ. But yet they feel that they're going to go to heaven. And the basis I ask, well, why would you, Jesus ever let you into his heaven? Oh, because I said a prayer when I was five. It's in my Bible. See, I, got, you know, I was baptized. I became a member of the church and so on and so forth. But let me tell you, that's a love that says I need to confront you. So many times when we confront sin today, it's called intolerant. It's called judging. It's called hate. And you and I live in a world now to say what the Bible says is hate language. To call out and say traditional marriage is good is to say that's hate. To say that I'm going to leave the Grammys because of all the sin and the wickedness that's being shown on that show is to say, oh, see, that person is judgmental. But we need to confront, but we need to confront with love. Do we call a doctor unloving when he tells someone, if you don't get this operation, you're going to die? Do you call that? Do you, do you, call, do you call a mother who tells her kid not to touch the stove uh, unloving? No. We need to confront error. I tell you, it's one of the ones that's missing in the house of God is that of love that is tough, that's understanding that we need to confront sin when it comes. 
So ask yourself, how do you love? How do you do these things? Just ask this question, how can I serve blank in love? Who, needs to be, who do I need to be patient with today? Who do I need to show mercy or encouragement? Who do I need to obey? Who do I need to put, submit myself under? Who do I need to confront? These are the things that you and I must do for those of us that have professed Christ. He's called us to sit a serving self is to serve others. And then fourthly, the fourth observation is Paul gives them a warning in verse 15. Where he writes, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We've already seen in Paul's many letters that the unity of believers is a big concern for him. He has pointed out that God is reconciling man not only to himself, but he's also reconciling man to man. Marriages, he's reconciling parents and children. That's his goal. And our freedom is not to cause dissension among the church. Most likely there have been a factions in the church of Galatia that were fighting over supporting Paul and supporting the Judaizers. And so there's factions, there's dissensions. Why have liberty to do this? No, you need to toe the line and, and follow these rules and regulations to be right with God. But unity is the mark of true believers. You see, a lack of love shows who is genuine and who is not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is speaking about the Lord's Supper. Church of Corinth, there is a fight going on. There is dissension, a lot of factions, a lot of strife. And in it he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For, listen to this, this is what's interesting. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What is he saying? He's not saying that churches will not have divisions. He's not saying that churches won't have problems. Just like any marriage, any family, any workplace, there's always going to be division, is there not? But the difference is, those who seek unity, those who seek love, those who seek peace are the true children of God and the ones who are not show themselves to be liars and not those of Christ. So let me ask in your relationships now, are you one that's causing division or are you the peacemaker? What does he say? Blessed are the peacemakers. Love is the one that shows who is and who is not a Christian. A community of believers, you see, is a tough testing ground, just as any marriage or anything else, but a church is a testing ground to live in love. James chapter 4 says, says this, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? What's going on in your church? What's going on in your lives? Why do these things continue to happen in the church of God and among God's children? He writes, Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Paul says, let it not be so in the house of God, for love covers a multitude of sin. Reign in your passions. The liberty of the gospel means that I no longer have to do a certain matter of things to be right with God. 
I don't have to do those things to be right with God. And I think there may be some of you here that are struggling with that. You may say, boy, I didn't read my Bible today. Oh, I, I didn't pray enough. Oh, I didn't tithe enough. Or I didn't go to church enough. And you're thinking, well, I'm not thinking about God enough. And you're thinking, God must be mad at me. But let me tell you, if you're a child of God, if you truly have submitted to Him, and He is your King, you're trusting in the works of Christ, none of those things matter. For if you are part of God's family, you're adopted into it, He's not throwing you out because you haven't done a set of rules and regulations for Him. It's not what He calls us to. We're free from trying to produce our own righteousness. When He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, it's not based on all my works, but it's based on what Christ has done in me. We must recognize that. I think that's many times why there's so much turmoil and so much problems in marriages and churches and in families. It causes division. Let me end with the application. What you're to do, what you're to know, and what you're to be. You and I need to know this, is that everyone you come in contact is an opportunity to express God's love. God calls you to express God's love in everywhere you go. Even the guy who's cutting you off down the middle of the street. Even that lady that takes your parking spot at the mall. Even that husband or that wife that doesn't seem to meet each and every one of your needs. God has called you to love and express it. What you and I are to do is we're to challenge ourselves this week. Would you do this? To esteem others better than yourselves and to deliberately treat them with that attitude in mind. Seek to show honor and love them as you love yourselves. And what are you and I to be? What is type of character traits, attributes? Is you and I need to be humble in the face of God's great love to us. For we show that love because God demonstrated to us and He's called us to do. Let me give you one last word of encouragement before our worship team comes. And that's found in Romans chapter 12. You see it there. Why don't you read this out loud with me? Just make sure you're awake. It says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You're going to have an opportunity to do that as soon as we close. Would you begin today to express the freedom found in the gospel in loving others? Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your strength. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to earn for us what we could not do ourselves. And Lord, I pray that you begin to work in our hearts that we may love others. Many times we're still ruled by our passions. We're slave to our desires. But let us remember the gospel that set us free, not to serve self, but to serve others. Bring those people in our lives this week. May we see it that way. And Lord, may we be humble in glorifying you. We praise and name your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.